Welcome to Bending the Art, a podcast series that explores the everyday work of creating inclusive, equitable, and racially just communities. I'm Mark Joseph, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. I host and produce this podcast along with my colleagues at the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities at Case Western Reserve University. In this episode, we'll be talking with Salin Gieberges, President and CEO of SGG Insight and Founding Director of the Mixed Income Strategic Alliance. Salin served for most of the two terms of the Obama administration as a senior leader in the Department of Housing and Urban Development. His perspective on promoting comprehensive community change is particularly interesting, given his wide-ranging professional experience. His career journey includes work in the corporate sector, in management consulting for the TCC Group, work in philanthropy as a senior associate at the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and his extended stint in the federal government. We're recording this conversation as the Biden-Harris transition team is deep into its preparations to take office. So Salin's perspectives on lessons learned from the Obama administration's efforts to advance place-based change are particularly timely. Salin Givergiz, welcome to Bending the Arc. Thank you very much, Mark. It's great to be with you and with your listening audience. All right. So I've given the audience a sense of your wonderfully diverse professional journey. You spent time in the corporate sector, nonprofit sector, and the public sector, and now you're a strategic consultant. Uh, you've got your own firm, SGG Insight, and you partner with us at the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities. I'm going to focus most of this conversation on your role in the federal government. So then let's start with some quick reflections about your time in the corporate sector and the nonprofit sector. And I thought you could briefly pick kind of one experience in each of those and talk to us about a key takeaway that you took from that experience and how it's influenced the rest of your career moving forward from there. Mark, uh, Thank you for the opportunity. Let me also congratulate you and the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities for this Bending the Arc uh, series uh, and its contribution not only to the field, but to all of us uh, who are listeners and uh, to the strength and the power of your voice for all these decades. It's, it's, it's a wonderful contribution you're making. To your question, uh, I, I was in different organizational contexts, uh, but often in those different organizational contexts focused on social change and social impact, uh, even in my time in corporate leadership. So I would often say it was same mission, different venue. Mm. I realized that I've been on many sides of the table in terms of confronting um, our toughest challenges. And uh, with that diverse experience, when you're at those tables and you're sitting in different chairs, you're bound to think about the different interests that different sectors bring around the table. So on the corporate side, takeaway for me would be um, even when I was focused on corporate social responsibility and the kind of higher purpose of this Fortune 500 technology company at the time, um, the question does go back to whether the work serves the interests of the company. 
And so there's an alignment to mission conversation that you're always having. Where is it that we are adding value to the overall corporate enterprise, even in the social responsibility frame? Uh, for nonprofits, uh, the question about alignment to mission came up for me uh, a lot. Um, but I would say more often than not, it was about the scope and scale of results. Mm. Uh, are we doing the most with what we have? Sometimes that was a question that was posed from within the organization. Sometimes it was the question posed from outside of the organization that was inviting us to think bigger, broader, deeper. I would say the other thing about nonprofits that was really interesting is the claims that we were trying to make in terms of contribution to results. So uh, I was really struck in the administration how rare it was uh, to have people with a range of experience and leadership that I had. And I could see how limited exposures affected how people thought of other sectoral leaders. So it was a uniqueness and it was great to bring that uniqueness to the experience. Great. Thank you for sharing that, that background. So Amy Carin and I were so pleased when you agreed to write an essay for the What Works volume, uh, sharing lessons about your time spent as a senior leader in the Department of Housing and Urban Development in the Obama administration. Your essay is titled Reflections on the Role of the Federal Government in Promoting Greater Urban Equity and Inclusion. And you served in the administration for most of the first term and all of the second term. In fact, I remember visiting with you in your office uh, in that last year and uh, really admiring your commitment to serving all the way through the end. You had colleagues who you know, could see what was coming, the writing on the wall, and were starting to move on to the next things. But uh, I know it was a real point of pride for you that you, you served all the way through the end. I, I hope it was admiration and not um, your feeling like I was crazy to have lasted as long as I was. I'm sure there were others oh, who no, thought that. that. I, I felt that way, too. It was both. You felt that way, too. I'm sure it was. It was a mix of of crazy and and admiration. But just to set the stage, tell us a little bit about the specific roles you played, because I know you had some uh, role evolution over time. Yeah, and it's a great conversation, and I'm happy to to reflect on it. So I came to the administration uh, a little bit differently than a lot of people as an executive on loan from the Annie Casey Foundation uh, to help in late 2009. So that's the time period. Uh, as we were trying to launch many of the flagship place-based initiatives. And this notion of timing is going to come up a lot, I know, in our own conversation. That story um, of coming as an executive alone is a funny one, and it's one that I've shared publicly. Uh, but it did provide some limitation, uh, some lessons about the limitations of communications when you get messages like someone from an administration wanting you to serve. So. Uh, In the administration, when I first came in, I uh, first served as a senior advisor, uh, both when I was on loan and then in a very short period, uh, six to eight months in uh, to my service, I became a senior political appointee in this new office called the Office of Sustainable Housing and Communities. And the importance there is that HUD, uh, much less other agencies, hadn't created a new office in maybe two decades. And so there was a lot of those growing pains about uh, leading a new office. Um, I was also a member of the leadership team of the Partnership for Sustainable Communities between HUD, DOT, EPA, and some other agencies. And then I later became the acting director of that same office, which kind of morphed into the Office of Economic Resilience. Uh, And so then lastly, 
now we're we're from 2009. We're now in 2014. I became a member of the secretary's cabinet as uh, the deputy assistant secretary of the Office of International and Philanthropic Innovation. And that work had me curating, cultivating, and developing many innovations on issues of place and people, and then leading some international US delegations on urban policy with what your listening audience may recognize as the Sustainable Development Goals and, and Habitat 3. Uh, so that's seven years in about uh, a couple of minutes, Mark, but a lot of richness of role evolution, as you mentioned, uh, and different things. To great, do. great, great, great. We're going to dig into a lot of that. I'm just curious in terms of starting a new office. You mentioned there hadn't been one started for 20 years. Why start a new office? And and if you could just mm. real quickly, like what, what did that signify? And also, I guess, what did that, that mean that there was this brand new office to be created? It's a great question and one which I suspect even in this new administration where there will be energy around new mm -hmm. and innovating and not trying to do things within established structures. It's always the tension. And it was a tension back then. Um, what I would tell you is that at that time, during this equivalent moment of transition, the folks who were assisting on transition had some pretty audacious goals around how we needed to think uh, in a different way with different set of agency tools across agency work, even in a different level of scale. And every time they answered the question about new, innovative, we're gonna push, we're gonna press, the question ended up being, if we put that kind of new innovation push agenda within an established office, would it survive? or would the power of the bureaucracy and the agency essentially squelch new energy? And the calculation at that moment was, let's create a new office that will help to push the department, push other agencies. It was very strategic. It has lots of pros and cons as we've learned over time about what happens when you create new things. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get to that. And remind us the name of the new office. The new office was the Office of Sustainable Housing and Communities. Office of Sustainable Housing and Communities. So let me invite you a yes, no question. Mm. The current transition team reaches out to you and says, Salin, we're thinking about starting a new office. Based on what you said a moment ago, there's pros and there's cons. Would you say yes? Would you say no? I don't have a third choice, Mark. You can always, um, you can always create one. I tried not to give you one. So for some very specific reasons of their agenda, I would say yes. Mm. And one last follow-up on this. Does that office still exist, the one that was created? It does not. It does not. So it runs counter to the answer that I'm operating, but you'll see what my caveat was. Given what they're proposing, yes. a notion of new office uh, may be necessary. Because there's enough innovation and space for flexibility needed, given your sense of where they're headed, to say, yeah, you probably are going to need to try and set up another structure. I think structural responses to innovations and pushing are actually really appropriate to think about. And again, parts of the lessons that need to be learned are how to position new things to succeed. Uh, with levels of permanence, right? So that's part of the lesson that we learned is like, 
newness? Is it in a position to succeed and have permanence? All right. We're going to come back to that, as you, as you mentioned. You talked about this notion of timing, and I want to, I want to hit that now. We've got some strategic, some more specific strategic ideas I want to get into in a moment. But as we've talked over the years, and uh, you certainly reflect this in your essay, there's this one kind of global lesson that I feel like you took away from your time several years in the Obama administration. And it's, it's a lesson about the brief window of opportunity for transformational change in a new administration. And talking to you and others who served through that time, there was this early period of time where you all felt like you were on offense, creating, innovating, thinking expansively. And then there were, I think, long years, a long phase of really shifting to playing defense and feeling like much of what you were doing was protecting the policies and the programs that you cared about, making sure that they weren't kind of kind of chipped away. So that early window, the kind of golden moment, uh, was even more critical. And in some ways, it seems like you all kind of were learning that lesson as it had passed, <laughs> looking back at that time, like, wow, we had a chance to. So I'm just curious, knowing what you know now, what, what do you wish you had done differently in that early window back then? And maybe more to the point, advising the Biden-Harris team today, what are the things they should be trying to do in that kind of early window of opportunity for, for kind of big change? One of the things that might actually be helpful for you and for the listeners is to, um, uh, is to at least lay some context that people will remember as they experienced it from media, as they may have experienced in their own personal advocacy back then. So, because it's a great question to understand, and it's exactly the kind of moment we're in right now. So one of the reminders to me, remember, I come in as an executive on loan. For those of us who've been on the outside advocating, pushing, pressing, different when you're on the outside than when you go on the inside, right? We're talking about the largest organization on earth, the US government, and the layers of complexity across the branches of government, right? And you get very quick reminders and refreshers daily around being part of a very complex, large enterprise. Uh, with President Obama's election in 2008, uh, I think we'll remember, at least that was the case for me, and I know it was for you as well, Mark. There was a euphoric spirit of possibility, even in the midst of the uh, economic collapse. Mm -hmm. um, people were rolling up their sleeves, willing to serve. There was a huge amount of draw into these jobs and into these roles in DC and elsewhere in the country. People were very willing to do their own part in the policymaking and governing. And it was very well documented now how early the opposition showed its face. Uh, but because of the favorable numbers in the House and the Senate that President Obama had, there was an opportunity to do big things. And quickly in 2009, that first year, we knew the Recovery Act would come through and some of the parallels to now are really interesting given what a Biden-Harris administration is both inheriting and will need to do from an economic perspective and with the COVID virus. We knew there would be the Recovery Act, but we got early indications from the Obama administration that they, they wanted to do some big things. And obviously the biggest thing they ended up doing, which actually impacted all of us on the team, uh, was healthcare reform, the ACA. 
so all of us working on issues of equity, inclusion, justice, and opportunity, we're pressing our priorities internally, engaging stakeholders, creating the space for innovation in that first year, 2009 as well. But remember, by the time the large place-based initiatives start getting rolled out, it's actually 2010. And what is 2010? 2010 is when the first midterms mm -hmm. happen. Mm -hmm. And during those first six months into the summer, you start seeing the rise of the Tea Party movement and other oppositions to healthcare reform. And everything, from my vantage point, starts getting branded as invasive. So our bottom-up work of local planning and community engagement, decision-making with these federal investment and place-based policy tools and supports gets branded, at, it's bottom-up, it gets branded as federal takeover telling people where to live and how to live. And it was completely, substantively, it was completely counter to that. So here's my takeaway with that context. As, as we think about 2021 and the first year of the Biden-Harris administration, I'm gonna be curious what's the effort or efforts that's gonna take the oxygen like healthcare reform did, if there is gonna be that equivalent. We know what the opposition is going to look like because the current occupant of the White House is likely going to be one of those champions. We didn't have that benefit back then of knowing. And how you build a movement that carries policy forward, that builds a constituency of support, that enables the federal government in this administration to lead, um, I think those are things that are going to have to happen in sequence and some that are in parallel. Uh, and once you get into our equivalent of 2010, which will be 2022 this time around, uh, it's going to be interesting if there is going to be a loss of courage and conviction on big issues. Uh, you know, the other thing that strikes me as a lesson from this time is you'll remember, Mark, President Obama, you remember the time when he was labeled the imperial president? Mm -hmm. And we've seen during the Trump administration how executive action gets used. All of us who serve have these reminders like if we did, if we tried that, if we even did that, we would have been ushered out of town. So one question for me is, if there is opposition, will Biden Harris take a more, here's what the norm of how we operate is, and be more incrementalist? Or will they take actually a lesson from the Trump administration, which I'm sure people are gonna encourage them to do, which is like, no, 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 don't wait on the Hill. Don't wait on anyone else, do it. He did it, Trump, President Trump did it, we can do it too. And you know, we're gonna be, we're living in a much more divided nation than we did, uh, I think in 2009. Uh, so how this administration governs amidst and leads amidst that kind of division, I think is going to be really interesting in these particular lessons and tools and interpretation of those tools from the Trump era, I think are going to be among the lessons that get learned. So clearly there's this imperative to move quickly, but I've also heard you talk about how to move and in particular, maybe this issue of communication and messaging mm -hmm. and framing and narrative. And I wonder if there's just something briefly you want to touch on 
that you would give advice about how to get ahead of the kind of narrative mm. challenge and opportunity. And we live in a moment, you know, years gone by from when you served, where information and framing travels even faster. Again, it's a, gr it's a great question and it invites a lot of reflection, some painful moments um, of miscalculations uh, from moments to go on offensive, the offensive and go on the defensive. So in that, in that chronology I gave you that people will remember, we, as we're doing this place-based work of equity, inclusion, opportunity, justice issues, the things that many of your listening audience, I think would care the most about, we were both listing to constituencies on the ground, what would make these approaches most powerful. So at one posture, because of that listening posture, we felt like whatever we were gonna do actually was gonna align well, was gonna push appropriately, but was gonna align well. When there is the rise of the Tea Party movement or the oppositional forces, we start hearing early about this branded nature of the invasive way in which we're operating. Now, remember, I just talked about our listening posture. We we're like, we're not invasive. We actually, we're actually designing something that meets the needs of what people on the ground would actually do. So here's the miscalculation. And it was a miscalculation that I did, was as we're hearing those messages saying like, I'm, people were showing up at town hall meetings and saying like, don't, don't do this, don't support this. This is the federal government taking over. When my colleagues and my staff and others actually were mentioning that, I told them it's not true, which is true. It wasn't true. Stay focused, stay focused on the work. You know what the work actually is. Don't give it oxygen. Three months would pass and the frequency and intensity of that voice started to increase. And it's probably true that even three months passed. And I said, stay focused, do the work. It's not true. Um, in six months, it was kind of overwhelming. And we started to pivot late to, oh, we really need to get out in front of this because this is not going away. In fact, it's, um, it's growing with, it's actually really impacting work on the ground in a very disruptive and powerfully disruptive way. So we started to pivot, but it was late. Hmm. And then we were on defense. So uh, again, we know kind of what the oppositional stance is. They're gonna likely evolve. They will be, they will sound different than they did back then. But my encouragement to this administration is uh, build narrative early, reinforce narrative early, have it be linked to an authentic message and a truthful message on the ground. Um, and when I mention movement, be cognizant that these are not just blunt policy tools. You need people to be in support and do the both and mm -hmm. build the policymaking train, the investment train, but be very aware of this notion of a movement that can actually support it along the way. So let's turn specifically to your essay, 
in the essay, you spotlight three crucial ways that the Obama administration worked to maximize the impact of its place-based policies and, and programs. One way was by working across silos within government, across government agencies. You mentioned uh, a moment ago the, the scale and breadth of the government and all these departments and all these groups working in silos. So one way is how to cut across the silos. A second crucial way was working across sectors, public sector, nonprofit, corporate, philanthropic. And then the third way you talk about in the essay is working across jurisdictions, federal, regional, municipal, and neighborhood level, since you were doing place-based work ultimately. So I want to kind of touch on those three in turn and to kind of narrow us in and keep us focused. For each of them, if you could do two things. One, what's a prime example of a win that you and your colleagues achieved in that kind of cross-cutting issue? And then secondly, what's a specific lesson that you would pass on? Again, we've got our eyes firmly on the Biden-Harris transition folks and startup folks and what they're, what they're thinking in this moment. What's a lesson you would draw for each of these three cross-cutting uh, imperatives? So let's start with the cross-silo approach. Here's what you wrote in your essay. You said, the cross-silo approaches taken during the Obama administration recognize the interconnectedness of issues such as housing, education, transportation, health, economic development, climate, right? These will all ring true for today. Silo busting became the mantra with local practitioners and policymakers describing the challenges of federal fragmentation and imploring leaders from the vast array of federal agencies to work more effectively and efficiently together. So given that mantra, what was a win and what's a lesson? So Mark, you know me, uh, they're going to be um, sticky and probably not clearly as uh, concise of one lesson. I'm going to cheat, in other words. Uh, so here's what I would tell you and what I'm going to emphasize. Uh, I would, I'm, I'm not going to probably emphasize, at least in this first response, on the cross silo, on the technical. There are lots of technical things, policy achievements that we can actually, I'm going to actually point to some kind of adaptive organizational uh, parts of this that I think often get unseen, but need to get lifted out. So on that front, um, what I would say is one win that we're experiencing, I think more and more now is, is that we speak in intersectional cross silo terms as normal now. Mm. I think we've reset the expectation about policymaking in government and what our expectation of a all government kind of approach needing to be like. So we enter now believing that silo busting is what we should be doing as part of good governing and part of good government. Uh, I would also say we increased the competency and fluency of agency staff and officials on each other's policies and platforms. Now that, that doesn't seem like a big thing, but given what you mentioned around housing and transportation and education, I think we learn better how to connect, uh, how our decisions in one agencies affect decisions in other agencies, how to create better conditions uh, for action from the federal side. 
Um, agency folks, like many of us in, in, in the ways in which we're trained can be highly specialized in their knowledge. And they're often in their job invited to think narrowly. Uh, but I think the work that we did in the cross silo realm, it placed people's sights higher, uh, gave them permission essentially to look at the forest instead of looking at the trees, which I think was really powerful. And for many people who I think came to government wanting to serve and solve problems, many of them articulated that they wanted the tools of cross silo approaches. They didn't want to burrow down. Uh, they wanted to work in interagency ways that animated their move to service. And many of them were re-energized by, by, by that as well. So lessons real quickly. Um, working across silos takes day to day work at every level. And we were lucky in the cross silo work that we did that many of us who came in to frame any of the place-based initiatives. They, we were colleagues, some of us were colleagues before. And so there was a lot of trust among leaders, but as normal, uh, there is churn uh, across. And we've seen that during the Trump era, many people might remember that even during the Obama administration where leaders are leaving at various moments. And with each leadership change, there was the need, given the cross-silo work we wanted to do to reinvest in the relationships, to reinvest in the knowledge building and the trust. And trust matters uh, when you're trying to do good work together. And it fuels our ability to do things. When that trust erodes or the relationship is brand new, um, it's hard to push the envelope. So I'll, I'll, I'll be more specific here. Not everyone was willing to take risks together, particularly as we were experiencing these leadership changes. And so the work of equity and inclusion and opportunity, if you're at HUD, feels a certain way given our being birthed out of the civil rights movement. But that's riskier to some of these other agencies we mentioned before. And when you do cross silo work, part of doing it well means you're stepping up and standing up for each other and seeing each other in each other's work and so for a Biden-Harris administration that's gonna lean into a racial equity agenda and lean into potentially a cross-silo racial equity agenda, I would say those agencies have to see themselves in that vision. Even if it seems much more removed or maybe not a part of its original mandate, and that's gonna take day-to-day -day work. I wonder if you could drill down just even one more layer to like practice. You talked about day-to-day-to-day vigilance to do the cross silo work. And I love that you put racial equity on the table as one example that clearly the administration, incoming administration has spoken to. I'm curious, what, what practice could be put in place? What practice worked for you all as a way of keeping a particular idea or construct or imperative in front of people across agencies? So mm -hmm. for example, um, I know that you and you talk about in your essay um, where a particular agency was putting out a NOFA, Notice of Funding Availability, what most folks would call an RFP, Request mm -hmm. for Proposals, right? So there's funding available from the federal government. These are the criteria for those who want to apply. It's a really powerful mechanism 
to mm-hmm. say to a bunch of people who are going to be looking at this thing saying, I want funding, this is what you got to think about. This is what you need to include in your application. So that comes to mind for me as one mechanism, one practice to say, all right, how do we name racial equity in NOFAs, but have it named in the HUD NOFA, the Department of Education NOFA, Agriculture NOFA, the, right? So that, and named in a similar way so that you've now got players on the ground hearing the same thing, being held to the same kind of standard. So that maybe that's a, an example you want to pick up on. Maybe you think of, an, is there another practice that actually helps this stuff happen day-to-day across agencies? I'm going to name two. One that you mentioned, and I'll add another in terms of the practice and the day-to-day. So, you know, Mark, you often, and I think it's not lost on your listening audience, how, how important relationships actually are to the day-to-day. So one day-to-day practice is you've got to cultivate those relationships. For us, it meant frequency of meetings together, Mm. right? We were meeting weekly and monthly, but the frequency was there so that we could build into each other. And this is, again, where this notion of building fluency and competency in each other's work. So we would end up presenting what we're going to be doing at HUD while DOT or EPA is saying, like, here are the things that are closely approximated to the goals that you're trying to achieve that could be brought to bear, right? So at one level, it's practical. It feels transactional. To the odd listening audience, it could be exceptionally boring, mm-hmm. right? But it's in the boring that you actually move many of these things forward. So meeting uh, and having that kind of agenda. The other part of this is role of the White House mm-hmm. as setting the tone for a big priority. So there was structure and machinery and leadership and voice from White House even as the agencies were meeting and we were all meeting together. So the one thing is that. You mentioned the other thing about these um, NOFAs or RFPs that hit the street. Here's what I would say. Uh, One of the things that is in the essay was the uh, power of principles, design principles that actually enable people to see each other in each other's work, Mm -hmm. right? So there were these livability principles. Mm -hmm. So how do you make these livability principles real? It's in the day-to-day practice of how do they show up in each other's NOFA? Do we define them the same? Do we give outcomes and metrics and ways of thinking about them similarly so that we are sending similar signals to our own constituencies that are different constituencies. The Department of Ed constituency is a different one than HUD. DOT's constituency is different. And I will tell you, when you're sending those signals, people on the ground start picking up those signals. They're like, I saw the same language mm-hmm. over here. Mm-hmm. They, must be, they must be talking together because they're sending us the same language. And we would often be helping each other to say, when a metropolitan planning organization is starting to ask this kind of question because they're not used to seeing this from DOT, mm-hmm. transportation. How should we respond to it so that again, we present a unified front as we lean in? And it's among the reasons why when we both talked about racial equity before and racial equity moving forward, 
that hard work of making meaning of seemingly abstract things mm -hmm. in the day-to-day -day transactional work of the agencies, whether on NOFAs or others, I think is really, really important to do. The announcements are easy. The press releases are easy. The speeches are easy. It's this work that's in the interstitial spaces that matters a lot. Let's turn to the second one, the cross-sector approach. Here's what you wrote in your essay. Government cannot solve complex issues with comprehensive solutions without the help of capable partners and stakeholders in the private, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors. Nor is government always best equipped to be in the lead or even to be the one to convene the other partners. So as you think about working across sectors, and, and this is interesting, right? Because this your journey, your own personal journey is one of crossing sectors. So this might be the one that's nearest to your heart. Um, what was a win? What did you all achieve in this regard? And what, what's the lesson you would take away? Even in the question, and yes, even in my own personal experience, this notion of being uh, within a larger ecosystem uh, that, ha that is bringing the weight of its authority and voice and tools uh, to the table, I think is something that perhaps we should always kind of return to. And I think we were very well aware of it. Uh, and that, that was expressed even in the statement that I made in the, in the essay. Uh, so as an example of a win, um, I think I may have at times underestimated where people would say to us, the federal government, your, your enforcement hammer is powerful and none of these other players, nonprofit, private sector, philanthropic sector, we don't have that tool, right? Of a violation that gets made and what it means for the federal government to intervene. And we've seen this in criminal justice. We've seen these other ways in which it's uniquely possessed by the federal government and how it gets used. And there were times where people would say, um, we are, it's a requirement of the program. You are questioning why we're doing it. It's a requirement of the program. It's a requirement of receiving the assistance or the investment. Um, sometimes people would also say, and I'm sure your listening audience will have a reaction to this, I'm being made to do it. Now, if I'm hearing that, and I heard that, I would often engage people saying, that sounds pretty cowardly, right? That you're being made to do it. You don't, you don't want to do this. You obviously applied to the program. So you actually want to do this. Uh, but, you know, uh, these initiatives reveal courage and cowardice in different ways, right? But I would say uh, people often needed cover. And when the federal government, through its various tools, can actually provide uh, cover. So one is what's uniquely possessed by one of those sectoral actors in enforcement hammer, I think is one of them. We would often combine the, those unique federal tools uh, with a spirit of humility and innovation and risk-taking to give people cover on the ground to do the things they wanna do. And we try to honor being a fellow problem solver, a member of the table, not the dominant voice at the table, maybe again, not the best convener of the table, but we should be at the table. And what does it mean for us to be at the table with the tools that we actually possess? Um, I, I, 
I came to believe that those tables have to be set uh, so that everyone can bring their knowledge, their expertise, their voice, their tools, uh, and helping local governments sometimes see the utility of setting a table that engaged nonprofit actors and philanthropic actors and university players, I think was another way we used our influence to say, set the table more broadly, set the table more inclusively, even if we were not gonna be the convener. Helping private sector and social investors uh, understand that government can add value uh, and set conditions from problem solving, sometimes set those conditions and get out of the way, I think was, uh, was important. Every way that we were setting this tone for cross sector, I think was also resetting the notion of how should people engage and relate to government um, in a way that doesn't have to be hierarchical, that can be one where the table again is set. So there's a lesson here though. And I've, I've spoken about this publicly a couple of times, Mark, and you may have even heard me talk about this. So I'm gonna reiterate it here. When we do a good job in setting the conditions well, to design the investments and the interventions well, even serving as a good partner, even as oxymoronic as it might be, actually being a fellow problem solver, government as problem solver, it'd be really good for people on the outside to lift that up to acknowledge it, to celebrate it. Um, we're gonna have to, particularly in this next go around with this new administration, we're gonna have to pierce through a narrative. It's gonna be, it's there already. It's gonna be more powerfully present that all government is bad, it's evil. And so people are gonna have to use their political capital to help reset that narrative, to vouch for good work when it happens, to use their tools, the pen, their voice, others to actually say, this was a good move, this work. I'm not saying that it can't be without critique, but there were times where when we did good things, the silence was deafening and that silence is filled with narrative and with mythology. And so I would really invite people, if there are good things that actually happen, find a way to stand behind. Critique, we need you to critique, but stand behind it. One more is the cross-jurisdictional approach. And, and here's what you said in the essay. The levers and solutions to problems of equity, inclusion, and opportunity cannot be limited to what can be accomplished at the project scale or the neighborhood scale. Housing markets, jobs, transportation, other infrastructure, economic opportunities, the environment, health, exist within a larger geographic dynamic and ecosystem, revealing the interconnectedness of neighborhoods, cities, and regions. So yet another dimension of complexity here to cut across that in the administration you all took on, head on. And once again, what would you lift up as an example of, of progress you made? And uh, what would you take away from it? So I think much like cross-silo and cross-sector, with cross-jurisdictional, there was both in messaging and substance, there were people who got it pretty easily because they saw it play out 
in their daily lives that these issues that we have, and we're at a moment now where maybe even without an invitation, people can see how COVID plays out, not in a jurisdictional way, right? With our travel, with our movement, with how things actually are. So people actually got it. So one of the wins was, I think putting a frame on it actually got people to say, oh, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. So for us, the wins became, how do we reinvigorate and maybe even create some new flexibilities so that people can start working in the ways they wanna work, right? Outside of the boundaries that they feel constrained by, working regionally for us on fair housing and segregation and equity issues. And sometimes people on the ground would end up saying, uh, I'm glad that we have the flexibility to operate this way. It's a much more efficient way to operate. And their, uh, their arguments be, would be rooted perhaps in efficiency. We can, it's a cost savings maneuver to actually get us to work together, submit one plan or one requirement versus 80, right? Uh, and we created reciprocity agreements for aligned efforts that were similar. When people actually wanted to say, we're ostensibly doing similar things, can we actually just do this once? Just give a little more color to that. So, for example, the reciprocity agreements. Just talk our listeners through just an example. Like, what would that look like? Reciprocity between whom and whom? Just get, make it a little more concrete for us. On the regional side, and particularly as it relates to regional equity issues, there was a huge, and I talk about this in the essay around the work that we did around the affirmatively furthering fair housing issue. So on the books, even prior to the efforts of the Obama administration, there was an ability for cities, municipalities, and for uh, regional actors to actually submit a, uh, a regional plan or a regional assessment of, for, uh, of fair housing together. People were not doing it back in the day. It was called the analysis of impediments. It was on the books. People weren't using it. We leaned into that. They, we said like, look, your work of equity, because housing markets aren't neighborhood markets only. They are much more expansive. It works at the transportation scale, works at the economic development scale. So we actually leaned in to say, it's on the books. We're going to give you more opportunity. Like if you guys want to get together and start looking at your data together as a region, if you want to start making investment decisions, policy decisions together as a region, we'll accept the one uh, plan that will cover all of you. But you guys have to do the hard work of, and this is where the lesson comes in, you're going to have to do the hard work of getting on the same page. But if we on the federal government side, like we'll acknowledge that, we will receive that in a certain way. I think that was, uh, that was important. That's where the lesson actually did exist for us hmm. because our, our uh, governance fragmentation, our politics hasn't caught up with the way in which we wanna work cross-jurisdictionally. And so there are narrow interests at the neighborhood level. There are narrow governance and decision-making bodies at municipal and regional level and uh, sometimes there was the lack of political imagination. I can't, I can't get those suburbs to be on the same page as my city related to how we wanna think about affordable housing. 
and where we should cite affordable housing. And what we wanted to be able to do is like, you guys should really think about that. Not as a us against them, which is part of our dynamic is we, we do create and we have that still now of an us them dynamic. Uh, and, and the challenge for us federally is that on so many of these issues, our tools federally are weaker by design. We're a federalist system. There's a lot of devolved authority on these issues to local and regional. And so while we might be able to say, we'll accept the plan, uh, we will even incentivize with tools at the table. Part of what we're gonna have to deal with now is where uh, where might the federal government actually be uh, set the conditions and incentives, maybe even better, uh, condition our investment perhaps a little bit stronger, get people to work together uh, in, a, in, a, in a much more powerful way. Uh, but my sense is that people want to work in cross-jurisdictional ways. Can we get our politics to catch up to people's desire and will to work in the ways mm-hmm. they want to. Mm-hmm. I need to move us on to the next question, but before I do, I wonder if you'd be willing to just name a couple regions for our listeners, for the transition team to say, if you want to look at places that took this seriously, uh, maybe had some courage um, to reach out cities, suburbs, exurbs, are there any to come to mind that you just name for our listeners to maybe hop on and, and check out and try and learn a little bit more about? Anywhere you would name? One of the things that we did learn as it relates to cross-jurisdictional work is that if the region has actually already been doing the hard work of coming together prior to the reciprocity, the investment, the incentivization, it will show forth not only in terms of the long, long-term sustainability of the work, but you can actually feel it and sense it on the ground. So for instance, the Boston region was very clear to us that they had already been doing work actually on issues of racial equity. And while it was challenging, there was some pre-work that was already being done there that meant that by the time we were putting investment on the ground, um, it was more of a catalyst uh, for the work that needed to actually happen. Um, there were there was work in the Seattle Puget Sound region that was very similar, where part of what we were doing was actually giving voice structure, new structure, new voice, new tools, new investment to already a set of actors that were happening actually on the ground. In Denver, it was very similar. It was pre-work that was done. I, I will tell you that, and I talk about this in the essay as well, when this early work of the partnership actually happened, Mark, people saw themselves in the livability principles. And even for the planning work and investments we were actually doing, if memory strikes me, like three quarters of the entire country that was eligible to apply, applied for that program. We were only able to award 11% of the grants and it crisscrossed all the states. Um, People have very different ways in which they Mm -hmm. saw themselves in the principles. 
but it resonated heavily. So even though I've mentioned larger cities, there were tribal communities. There were mid-sized communities who found their way. And my lesson on the cross-jurisdictional is if you're already doing that hard work, you'll find a federal government partner that's, that is going to help you take the next step. Well, as you know, as well as anybody, our center and this podcast has a particular interest in mixed income communities. So I got to ask you about the Choice Neighborhoods Initiative, which was part of that kind of transformational moment that you've talked about that you were a part of. So Choice Neighborhoods, as our listeners, many of them will know, is the federal program to fund mixed income transformation of high poverty areas. And at this point, 10 years in, uh, there are implementation grants and planning grants in over 100 cities, to your point just now about how many cities have kind of jumped on board with some of this place-based work. It was a welcome surprise to many of us that Choice Neighborhoods has endured these past four years, uh, and in fact been expanded over that, that period of time. It was a major leap forward back in 2010 when it was developed uh, by your colleagues and yourself uh, to replace the Hope Six initiative our listeners would be familiar with, which had lasted for 18 years. So 18 years of Hope Six, 10 years, 11 years now of, of choice. Um, what's the next leap forward? And I guess in the interest of time, if you could just name just one or two uh, shifts, enhancements, you'd really like to see the Biden-Harris team and administration consider uh, around choice neighborhoods and mixed income transformation? It's not going to be a surprise to you, Mark. Uh, it may be a surprise to your listening audience. I would, you know, over that period of nearly three decades, the stronger emphasis on issues of racial equity and justice in confronting segregation in our neighborhoods, the legacy of what created these pockets of racially concentrated poverty, uh, we have often been more silent in these programs on the issues of race, but the place-based work in our context here in the United States, it cannot be advanced without thoughtful and persistent work to undo the harms of the past and the present and to do the work of racial justice actually on the ground. So that would be my first thing. The Biden-Harris administration has staked itself out on leaning on racial equity I would lean more heavily into that work, into what does it mean for a choice neighborhoods as it situates itself in, into a region to wrestle through the issues of both how they got to the place they are, where they are headed, what it means for what they're becoming, even as it, it mm. relates to mixed income issues and mixed race issues. And so I'd lean more heavily in that. And I'd be much more explicit about that. That's one. The second thing that I would put on the table is something that's near and dear to both of us, which is the unfinished business of this work on issues of social inclusion and economic mobility. And for me, that would be, can we rethink the issue of uh, wealth building for residents? in a different way, in a much more powerful way? Could we think differently about these investments that enable residents to get on a stronger trajectory for ownership and wealth building in a different way? And I'd love to kind of think through that. It may be that the program uh, enables certain things, doesn't enable other things, but I would love for people to say like, 
can we can we get this program on a stronger foundation for the kind of transformative outcomes I think it was intended to do. Thanks for that. Well, I can't let you go without shifting gears uh, to the personal for a moment. Mm. Um, You've written beautifully about your perspectives on race and racism from the perspective of your journey as an Indian American man. And uh, we'll make sure to, to link your recent essay that was featured in the Washington Post uh, to this podcast so the readers can, can check it out and learn more. Because certainly we don't, we're going to just have a little snippet from you here. Uh, but for readers who want to hear more, please check out Salin's uh, essay. Here we are in a moment where more and more Americans are, are willing to take a hard look at the question of centering blackness and centering the issue of anti-Black racism. And I'm curious to hear kind of a word or two from you about kind of the role of what we might, what we call brown folks in that, when we talk about the black and brown communities. So people of color who fall somewhere on the spectrum in between black and white in our racialization in America, um, what's the imperative for those communities uh, from your vantage point? I look forward to reactions from the audience to the essay that came out in the Washington Post. And thank you for sharing that with folks. I, I won't be able to do it justice uh, now, but um, I will say, and this hopefully came through even in the essay, that those of us on the spectrum in between and who've navigated uh, our lives of being in between, I think must realize our indebtedness and our solidarity, quite frankly, for those who have shed blood for our collective freedom and for our opportunity. Uh, My family is not in this country, but for that sacrifice. And I have freedom ancestors who came before me that I need to pay homage to and pick up the mantle and my own burden of expanding the franchise and opportunity. I think it was that connectedness to sacrifice and the obligation that I felt that called me into the work that I am doing now. So I think we also must be less silent and have the courage of our convictions to stand and speak up for justice in whatever mechanisms and venues we actually have. And I think we must, as brown folks, see ourselves as interdependent and deeply vested in the success of all. Um, I think there are lots of immigrants and folks in the middle who see as our first obligation, let me extract what I can for myself and for my family. Um, And I think we're gonna have to pivot to maintaining a posture of we've got a Uh, We are interconnected and interdependent. And so if people are not succeeding in pockets of places that may be removed from us, then that affects all of us. Uh, So I'd love to be able to see more. I've seen more, actually. And we saw it this summer uh, of people stepping up, standing up, uh, speaking up. Uh, I may have even been late with my own essay. Uh, on the train, so to speak, but I hope more and more people will just see that. That's beautiful, Salon. Thank you for that. Um, we end our podcast, as you know, because I know you're one of those listeners, 
uh, with a question about action steps, right? That the podcast is called Bending the Arc. Uh, we got to bend it. The, the arc of the moral universe uh, is not going to bend itself toward justice and the sacrifices you were just talking about, the, the moving out of silence you were just talking about is bending the arc. So if you could just close with uh, one action step uh, you're going to commit to, uh, our listening audience is leaning in in this moment to hear what you're about to offer uh, for yourself. Um, and then one that you would encourage others. What's an action step you would encourage others to do? Mark, for, for you and I both who have much more to give and much more uh, potentially to be called to leadership on, I think my action step is to be responsive to uh, if a call comes to serve in a different way. That I, that I would hear it. But I would also say we're also at the point where our connection to a now and a next generation of leaders and being willing through these podcasts and others to put some wisdom, to put some experience in that next generation, uh, to be willing to follow uh, their lead and their uh, impatience and their uh, willingness to be strong and bold. So it's going to be both for me in terms of an action step. If I get asked to lead because I've got more in me, I should be willing to do that. And I hope I'll be willing to do that as well as kind of curating and cultivating that next generation. My action step for others would be uh, this. And I'm remembering, and you may have even heard this little quip that I do. I'm quoting a colleague and friend of mine from Mobile, Alabama, who told me something, she actually said this publicly, but it stuck with me for now decades. Uh, and she said this, she said, uh, we overemphasize the rocket science in our work and we underemphasize the small p political science. For those of us who are heady people, who are in our heads, who are policy folks, who are wonkish, who are nerdish, uh, I think we need to think about that uh, but I would say we need to create the will to change, be purposeful in recruiting others to join the movement for equity, inclusion, justice, and opportunity. Uh, uh, there are lots of things for which we already have ideas, ideas that have been sometimes even very well vetted, but we're not ready, but we don't have the will to act. And I see this podcast actually as part of creating the will to bend the arc. And it's very important work. We've got to be active in creating a movement for change to bend the arc of the moral universe toward justice. So it's a pleasure to be with you and to offer that to your listening audience. Thank you, sir. It has been a pleasure partnering with you all these years. And uh like you said, we've got fuel in the tank. We've got way, many more to go, but thank you for taking time during a busy time of year for this conversation. It's been great having you on. Thank you, Solomon. Thank you, Mark. Many thanks to Solomon Gieverges for joining me for this episode of Bending the Arc. His essay on the role of the federal government in promoting place-based change is just one of almost 40 essays in our volume on mixed-income communities available for your reading pleasure online. You can find them on our website at nimc.org.
www.case.edu. Our podcast is produced and edited by Davey Barris from Case Western Reserve University's Media Vision. Funding for this podcast series was provided by the Ford Foundation, and funding for the What Works volume was provided by the Kresge Foundation. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with anyone you think would enjoy it. And we hope you will join us for future episodes. Until then, keep doing your part to bend the arc.